Hello and welcome to the latest uh, Business Leader Insight. We're here today in sunny Stockport to talk to the CEO and founder of Music Magpie. Music Magpie has been on a fascinating journey. We'll be hearing from Steve today all about that and about the uh, recent IPO that happened and any tips uh, that he can give our viewers. So welcome, Steve, uh, today. But yeah, it'd be good to just hear about your, your upbringing, Steve. Um, yeah, so obviously we're sat here now in the middle of Stockport, and I'm Stockport born and bred, so fairly standard, very happy uh, middle-class upbringing. So I uh, grew up in the Heatons, which is down the road from us here. Uh, so when I was 10 years old, mum and dad bought the local post office in Heaton, Mersey. So I grew up uh, living above a shop, which was uh, a great experience as a kid, not least of which because my dad says he would have retired years earlier if I hadn't eaten all his profits for, for years from the uh, sweet stand. But uh, yeah, my dad got me behind the counter at a fairly early age and I learned uh, retail and customer service and dealing with people uh, from an early age. That was, that was great fun. I guess I wasn't the most studious of disciplined kids at, at school, but um, I broadly enjoyed school and learning things as long as I don't, don't enjoy boring things very much and that's still very much my weakness in life, and sort of having to sit down and write great pieces, but I love my numbers. So yeah, school was a pretty happy experience throughout. So um, yeah, and then um, went to Sheffield University, so didn't stray too far uh, across the Pennines. Uh, I guess I always felt with Sheffield, it was far enough to get away, but close enough to get back. Um, so yeah, very happy childhood, you know, um, blessed to have a very close family. Uh, around me from an early age, and indeed that's always held true. Because I've, I've seen you've mentioned that about your, your, your dad owning the post office, and in a few kind of interviews you've done, you know, I, I guess it would have had to have been. Was that quite a big influence on you and how you kind of dealt with customers, and like you say, your interest to start a retail business? Yeah, I guess um, that absolutely, yeah. Um, sort of twofold, really. There was that kind of direct experience of seeing commerce going on in yeah. front of you and learning those raw skills, and you know, one day. In particular, where you know somebody came in, the uh, it was a card shop mainly, actually, with a small sweets and I think there was some tobacco as well. But um, I spent ages with this one customer, sort of reading out all the words because I think it was an elderly lady. And Dad said at the end of it, "Bless you for doing that." And that's like exactly the kind of son I want to raise. But do you know how much I've just paid you to sell that greeting card for thirty nine p? And then it was kind of that basic, oh yeah, hang on, think about that. Um, but also what I saw in, and dad in particular, although mum and dad, but as a old-fashioned sub-postmaster, he was very much ahead of the community. Mm. So he'd take those sort of duties of running the local post office really above and beyond just, you know, serving people across the country. He would help people. He would, he'd end up driving people to hospital in the evenings and stuff like that. So he did become and sort of wanted to make a difference and he cared about people and I guess that also made an impression on me. I guess time's repeating itself in the sense that you, you've got a community now of employees, you're still in Stockport, you're based in, in this building in Stockport. So yeah, I guess there is a sense that, that, that things are repeating themselves there in terms of what your father had, but, but on a bigger scale. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I guess, you know, ultimately he left a well-paid job uh, where he was uh, one of the early pioneers of sort of delivering computers, uh, computer hardware in the 60s into, into businesses, and he travelled quite a lot with that. But he made that change to become self-employed and you know not perhaps true entrepreneurship but he made that uh, change and yeah absolutely I think you know from an early age I knew I wanted to be an employer rather than an employee uh, as dad had done so yeah fo following in his footsteps in a couple of ways really but um, yeah we're you know I'm mean, mentioned just off camera now we 
you know, I've taken on chair of the Stockport Economic Alliance, which I take great pride in. I actually enjoy it very much. I enjoy experiencing and getting to know other businesses in the borough uh, and trying to act as that joining together of the Stockport Council economic policy and cascading information out into the business community, but also feeding um, information in. So, yeah, getting a good, good knowledge of business across the borough. And you, can't, you mentioned retail earlier, and obviously you, you had, I hope I've got my, my numbers right, 30 shops initially. And obviously to create the conditions for, for your IPO, which we'll talk about now, you took a quite yeah. brave decision, obviously, to close those shops and go completely online. Obviously, you know, that was in line with a trend. But can you just talk to me about that? Because that's, a, that's a, you know, that's one of those tough decisions that business leaders often have to make, but it's kind of served you, you, you well now. Actually, Ollie, it's fascinating because I always describe when we closed the shop at Magpie, it was a tough decision. Mm. It was tough emotionally um, because there were, you know, over 200 colleagues uh, in, involved in, in that. And, you know, there was a formal consultation period. And um, a lot of those um, colleagues were dear friends of mine. I'd worked with them previously in my previous business. And, uh, you know, one in particular, our head of retail, was kind of a very early founder of Music Magpie with us and um, it, so emotionally it was a really difficult time but actually commercially and business-wise it was one of the easiest decisions we've ever taken because we did our channel analysis we looked at where the business had been and where it was going and could see ultimately that the high street is significantly challenged it hurts me to say that but it obviously is it's uh, you know revenue was only going one way costs were going the other and um, actually the business benefited hugely from just becoming a pure play business and focusing so 100% of our revenue was online. So yeah, it was a very, very difficult time in the business, but equally, we all knew it was the right thing to do. And you know, it's difficult to kind of look back, right, you know, but do you, was there, was that decision made over a certain time, you know, it's not going to be a snap decision, but how, how can you, if you think back, how long did that kind of take you to sort of formulate that decision? And was that, did you, speak to a lot of people about it or, or are you the type of person who gets the idea and, and just goes with it? I guess um, the devil's always in the detail of the numbers and I'd love my numbers. I'm a mm. part qualified, part failed from many years ago accountant. So I do love my numbers and analysis. Um, but I've um, got a, a close friend in the business here who's now COO, he was CFO. And I mentioned, you know, you look at the channel analysis of the business and we could see the direction of travel from probably a year before but actually, I guess we wanted to give it every chance we could. So we pivoted the business to start trading and refurbishing and reselling consumer tech. So phones, which is now by far and away our biggest category, the UK's biggest mobile phone recycler. So we'd taken the decision to, to put those, some of those into the shops to try and support the performance of the shops. And ultimately, yes, they did. But we also saw that we didn't need to, in a sense. We could sell that inventory online. Uh, our challenge was buying more product, not the resale. So I guess, you know, business at times is about making tough decisions. Um, you can be nice and respect and value and trust people in business, and they're very much my ethos, but ultimately sometimes you just have to make that tough decision. And I think, like a lot of retail businesses, it was very seasonal, and actually we had had the peak season of a Christmas, and then it was got to the January, and it was like, this is tough, but... You know, and we engaged and we involved the senior retail staff in that process and decision and, in a sense, sh shared with them what we were looking at 
Um, and, you know, I think we could all tell that that was kind of what was needed to be done. Sure. And I just want to talk about the IPO. And you've mentioned, obviously, you know, capital was a big reason for it, but also it was a personal uh, challenge yeah. of yours to kind of float on the aims. Can you just say, you know, why was that IPO right for Music Magpie? So I think if we talk about for the business first, because that was the first and foremost consideration, we obviously had experienced great growth in recent years. I hated the expression at the time about pandemic winners and losers and beneficiaries, but there was a dynamic that the pandemic accelerated of people shopping online. Um, and also, I guess, also the aspect of, you know, um, you'll notice that green is in our logo now and being smart for the planet is a huge part. It's That's not us greenwashing. It's always been a fundamental principle of Music Magpie's business is that we are a recycling business, but the world suddenly woke up to how important that was. So there was the environmental side, the people going digital, uh, greater demand for the product, people having more time to sell it. But also there was two or three of our key strategies and growth initiatives that needed capital. So um, our kiosks that make it even easier to sell phones to us, uh, and in particular our rental model, our monthly subscription rental offer. So we don't just sell phones now, we rent them on a monthly subscription, which over the medium to long term makes a better return on that unit for us and gives us a stickier relationship with consumers. But we have to sacrifice that day one sale. Um, so actually we need some access to capital and the public market gave us a great answer to that. So it felt like the business momentum, the profile of the business was ready as well. About 50% of the UK population have heard of Music Magpie. That's good, but it means 50% of people haven't. So to get more exposure, both sort of consumer-wise and corporately, was attractive. So lots of good business reasons. Also, let's throw in there somewhere as well, shareholder return. And, you know, uh, it is, um, you know, a responsibility as a founder and director of people who back you in the past, etc. But then also, yeah, as you mentioned, Ollie, I, I guess on a personal level, I've done nearly everything in my business life. And actually, I talked to a number of people about it, pals and people who've done it. More people than not said, don't do it, Steve. You'd mm. be mad to do it. It's really hard. Mm. And that actually made me want to do it even a bit more. I'm some sort of masochist, I think, <laughs> professionally. But it, it felt like the last professional challenge for me, for me to do, sort of as I'd worked with private equity, I'd done management buyouts, I'd done startups, I'd done M&A, um, that I could then you know, be a public CEO really interest me and you know it felt like as I say that last professional challenge that's really interesting and and just quickly you were it was was it private equity backed up until that point was it it was yeah we did our first P deal in 2011 yeah and then a uh, uh, NVM joined me in 2011 um, round the board table so I'd worked with them for just over 10 years at Music Magpie mm. um, and uh, yeah made the decision together with them but clearly you know NVM did you know they were very respectful and mindful of what do you want, what's best for the business, and what do you want to do, Steve? Mm. So, um, yeah, but it was a, a, a joint decision. And you mentioned there, a lot of people said, don't do it, it's really, really tough. And a lot of our readers, you know, will be in the position where they are growing their companies, you know, they're interested in IPO. And what, you know, that level of scrutiny, was it as hard as you thought it was going to be? And can you give any advice to, to people who will watch this about what they can, you know, what you've learned and what they can do? Uh, so, perhaps a couple of pieces of fairly basic, but really really important advice what i will just say quickly about the ipo process is people have said to me since what was it like doing a virtual one because we did the whole ipo through a screen mm. 
So, um, as a, uh, you know, and they said, well, how did that compare to a physical one? I say, I have no idea because I haven't done a physical one. And by the way, I'm not planning to do one. Now, what I understand is I would have been flying around London on the back of a motorbike, God forbid, um, you know, doing in and out of buildings and meeting people. And it would have been all very manic. So I, I suspect that physically it was easier logistically to sit at a desk and do it through a screen rather than flying around. You know, such is the way of a lot of modern life now, business life. But I also suspect that mentally it was more exhausting because there was less break, less jumping in a cab and, you know, just having a break and a breather. It was meeting after meeting. And you, we all know what it's like to talk through a Zoom screen, including to very busy people who, let's face it, it's easier to be distracted when you're on a screen than in front of somebody. So um, it was exhausting and it was... Um, one of the most, well, I can only describe it as insanely nuts period of my life to, to you know, to be doing eight, nine, ten hours a day of presentations was um, intensely exhausting. So it, it took up all your time to do, you know, doing the IPA? Virtually all, yeah. I mean, you do then, you're trying to catch up on the day job, but, you know, thinking about those two pieces of key advice, what I would say is, and I'd say apologies because they're both blindly, I was really, Surround yourself by good people internally and have a great team because actually what we did effectively as myself and Ian, who's now my CEO, well, CFO at the time, basically worked on the IPO. So we divided ourselves and said, we're going to do mainly this. We'll check in with you, obviously, you know, and we told the whole process that we still wanted to be at our main trading meeting on a Monday morning, as an example. But we probably spent 80-85% of our time on the process. In particular, more Ian, actually, because he was doing a lot of the background work as well. I was doing most of the talking. But, you know, the team here, my senior leadership team, really ran the business in our absence. So we kind of divided ourselves that way. So get yourself a great team. And because, you know, I've done so many deals over the years where I've heard the biggest threat to that deal is distraction. Because if you get distracted, if you're trying to run the business at the same time as doing this, your business performance is going to suffer. The most dangerous thing for any deal, whether it's private equity or trade or public, is that the business starts to struggle and perform and miss numbers. My other advice is equally obvious, but surround yourself by good people externally. Get the right advisors. So we had a board advisor in Deloitte. We chose our brokers early on uh, and our corporate lawyer. And they are really the key people around you too. And spend time and make sure not just the professional aspect of but the personal aspect you enjoy working with them spending time with them you've got a connection you've got a relationship you're going to spend a lot of time with them you're going to spend more time with them than you are your family so you need to be you know comfortable with the quality of the advice you're getting the impartiality of it uh, but also just that you're going to enjoy spending that time because you are swamped in it you know, throughout that process, do you, did you let your staff know, like, obviously you got the senior leadership, but did everyone know in the business that you were planning this, or is it something you did and then let them know about? How, how, did, that, how did that work? I think that's a really interesting question, because I would say, well, how could they miss it? Because, you know, they could see us involved in it, but of course it was during the pandemic when everybody was working from home. But no, we didn't hide it. Did we go out and tell everybody this is, you know, well, it'd be a dangerous thing to do that, because if it doesn't happen, you're then going to start telling everybody. But we didn't hide it. Um, I think, you know, certainly those people who needed to know. Uh, and we're very open, you know, I mean, communication was absolutely the key thing for any business leader during the pandemic. 
I was doing a, I started off with weekly and then I went fortnightly, company comms to the business. Um, and, you know, we talked about it reasonably openly, but we also did say, look, you know, this isn't guaranteed to happen. And also, you know, we're considering other options, which, you know, there was other conversations going on. But um, I think certainly for the more senior staff, you know, the respect we have for them is that we wouldn't keep something like that from them. No, that's really interesting. Yeah, it must have been, yeah, a really different to go through that during during the pandemic so fair play for kind of seeing that seeing that through yeah it was yeah, yeah there were some pretty fraught days yeah i don't mind admitting you know to, as i say in front of the screen and sometimes you know you're presenting and pouring your heart out to a potential investor who not only has got the microphone muted but the video off so you're doing it all to a black screen um and you know hello you still there they may go up to the toilet or come for a cigarette we hope they didn't, and, and actually, we did get a great reaction. So yeah. Just in in terms of your kind of leadership style, has that changed since you've kind of IPO'd the business? And if you could go back and kind of tell your previous self uh, some advice, what what, yeah. what what would that be? So it it has changed in the sense of um, I probably was a great. Well, I, I know actually, we and I were a great sharer of information. So on my company comms pre-public life. I'd actually, for anybody interested, say our sales were up 16% last month, year on year, and our margin was up 2%, and our, you know, blah, 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 and I would talk about performance. I cannot do that now. I can't give our colleagues information that isn't publicly available information because I would be making all of them insiders. Um, so, you know, it, and that is quite difficult at times, especially when you're in a business that you're trying to build this feeling of engagement and, and ownership and responsibility. To not be able to tell them up-to-date financial information um, is a challenge at times. So you have to adapt that and talk about generally how you're feeling about where you're going, what you're doing, what your strategic plans are, etc. without that same level of detail. Because I mentioned before, I love detail. Devil's always in the detail and the numbers. So I guess I'm not, I can't be as open in my style in terms of sharing that information with them. But I think in terms of leadership style, I would hope, and I know some of this is the public change, as in post-IPO, but also post-pandemic world, where I'm not in front of people as much. I absolutely believe in more than anything being as approachable as possible. You know, I do sit in an office in the corner, not in the middle of the Oak Plan office, because I am on the phone a lot and having conversations. But I would like to think that metaphorically and in reality, my door is always open and I think that's a massively important aspect of leading any business. Yeah, thanks, Lester. I just want to now, you know, you've mentioned sustainability and looking at Music Map, like, you know, it seems that it's genuinely something that you're really, really kind of passionate about. Yeah. I want to first ask kind of why. Uh, a cliched answer, but, you know, one, the first question my chair to be, as he was at the time, now, mm. a, you know, close colleague and a, a great mentor to me asked me is, do you care about this stuff? He said, do you, do you actually care about it? So I said, am I a fanatical Greenpeace, I'm going to chain myself to an oil tanker kind of guy? No. But yeah, I absolutely care about this stuff. I've got three girls myself, um, you know, and I want them to grow up in a better mm. world. And let's face it, the whole world has woken up to mm. the importance of the planet. It's the most important thing we now face, you know, and anybody who can't see that, and whether you're a Trumpite or whatever, you know, if you can't see the facts and figures that are in front of you, there is something wrong with you, and it is the most important thing. And I do think we play a part in that. You know, we did a carbon study. Actually, we've done it post-IPO, 
but found out that um, refurbishing a, an iPhone rather than disposing of it and having a, so have a new one manufactured saves about 65 kilos of carbon. So, you know, you multiply that up with all the devices that we facilitate the recycling and giving of a certain life to, and we're saving about 50,000 tonnes of carbon a year. So this stuff matters. And what's fascinating is it matters to us. It matters to consumers more and more, which means that the investor community, who themselves will always say they care because they should do. Yeah. But of course, if all those stakeholders care more and more, well, they're definitely going to care about that. So the, when I say the world, I do mean the whole world, mm. not just young folk. And I think that, that was the first movement of this, really, of you know, younger folk waking up to... how. And actually, when the internet first came out 15, 20 years ago, it was all price, price and service, and can I trust them? Now it's, uh, am I engaged emotionally? Do I believe in these people? You know, you buy from... You do business with people you like. And I think consumers are doing that more with businesses that they believe in what they're doing so we try and form that connection with our consumers that way i mean you can only do what what you do but does it worry you on the bigger issue that unless china india and america and brazil start to do more then really what you do has and what we do in the uk doesn't have such a big impact um yeah it, to be honest that was probably my answer a few years ago the lazy answer as i walked across the kitchen and my wife used to tell me you know don't put that in the normal bin put it in the recycling i'm like okay i will but you know what's my effort going to yeah you know I, I, I read this about a year ago and i thought it was amazing and i'll get it i'll probably get it slightly wrong trying to recall it but it was basically like a million perfect environmentalists aren't going to solve this problem a billion imperfect environmentalists are going to say if we can all do our bit you can't just look at another country another you know business another industry and say oh well my contribution is not you know insignificant better well if everybody did that well you know we won't make any difference at all but i think this is a growing movement that everybody now cares about more and everybody can play their part in and you know you've got companies that that like yours are, are doing the right thing but there's a lot of companies who are saying they're doing stuff and they're not greenwashing yeah. do you think there should be harder punishments for those companies or is that going to be counterintuitive in the sense that they won't do anything then um no i don't i, I think you know it's all about integrity in life isn't it really and then i don't know quite how you police that for want of a better phrase but yeah there is there's there is too much greenwashing every business will try and tell you oh yes we really care about esg and you think oh, that's a bit tenuous a bit at best shall we say but i think you know how do you actually go about policing that I think you let the stakeholders police it in a sense and whether they believe it, all those important people, do their colleagues believe it, do their customers believe it, do their investors believe it? No, no, definitely. And <coughs> just want to yeah, come away from that. You mentioned earlier that the IPO was a personal challenge for you and you'd, you'd achieved it. What, what is your next big challenge that you want to achieve? A few people um, said to me, at the IPO, is this, it? is this your crowning glory kind of thing? And this is the end of the story. So absolutely not, no. Um, yes, I'm probably nearer the end of the Music Magpie book that I really want to write one day at the end of when I'm done all this. But, um, so I'm probably nearer the end than the start. Probably hope so after 15 years. But what I want to do next is make a success of being a public business and a public business CEO. That is massively important to me. And... We've got some really clear growth strategies to get there. Genuinely, I'm more excited about Music Magpie than I've been in 14 and a half years. 
because we've got some really clear, it's a tough world out there at the moment for any consumer business, but we've got clear strategies. I want to deliver them. I want to make a success. I know this business can be, you know, have a, a market cap. We have gone down since our float, not up. I want to finish with the business, you know, on the up and delivering the true potential, multi-category, multi-territory, a true music magpie circular is what we're calling our whole work with. We can adapt our relationship with consumers, the trust and our technology to deal with other product categories um, in other territories and we can lend that technology and services and operations and logistics to potentially work with lots of other brands in lots of other sectors and that's the potential of the business now. You mentioned, yeah, on, on, on the numbers there, you mentioned, yeah, revenue has, I've just, yeah, you know, dipped slightly this year, but you said that was in yeah. line with your management expectations, but you yeah. want to get that curve going up. Yeah, what, what, why was that and how, how will you achieve um, so I think, that further growth? I mean, we'd, you know, experienced some, we'd, we'd, we plateaued out about five years ago, so we got to about 70 million very quickly in those early years. We went half a million, two and a half, 11, 34, 63 in those early years plateaued at around 70 whilst we pivoted the business so we introduced technology as in consumer tech products into the mix we opened our US business we started moving people off the platforms off Amazon off eBay onto our own store so we were doing some really important structural pivot type stuff we pushed on again and then we pushed quite quickly through the hundreds early hundreds 120 hundred day and then we got to 150 the last year couple of different things really a lot of focus on the bottom line yeah. there's that old cliche isn't there about sales being vanity and profit being sanity um, but a lot of emphasis on the bottom now a lot of that was driven by the pandemic what we couldn't do is start pumping a lot more volume through our operations you know our operational colleagues were our heroes during the pandemic they were the folk who came into work every day my promise and our promise to them was we will look after you we'll make you feel safe and secure we bought the lunch every day, we, we said thank you to them in various different ways, but they delivered the business. A promise to them was we won't start flooding more people into the operation to cope with this demand that there was for people selling more to us and buying more. Um, so, you know, we, we looked at our, our volume, our ASPs, our margins, and it was really more about that bottom line growth. And I mentioned our monthly subscription scheme before. Yeah. If I sell, a, our typical iPhone, it might be 350, 400 pounds, I make a margin on that, I put it in the till today. If I do a monthly subscription or a rental on that same phone, I'm getting 20 pounds a month. It breaks even over a period of time, but like any, it's almost like a SaaS software, well it is exactly a SaaS software kind of model, where you're sacrificing that day one income and cash and EBITDA, the one-off hit, mm. but you're getting that recurring revenue through. And again, that, you know, is cannibalizing some of the short term certainly sales and revenue performance in the business but it's a very you know intentional strategy and that makes it so strategically uh, that's more sustainable and you'll, you'll get it's that a stickier with, relationship with consumers yeah, because yeah. actually we're keeping our refurbished phones longer and longer like we are everything else but you know the change between each one is now smaller people are keeping them for three three and a half four years so actually, if you sell or buy one, hopefully both from us today, great, thank you. But 
you know, unlike, say, our fast fashion friends in, in Manchester up the road who want to sell another item to you next week and then next week and the next week, we may struggle to do that. But actually, if we've got a monthly relationship with you where we can say, hey, do you want an upgrade or do you want an extra accessory for your phone or whatever, we can service you and, um, and keep that relationship. Well, that makes sense, Steve. And I just want to talk about people now. You know, you, you've consciously decided to, to base the business in, in Stockport. Can that give you access to the skills you need? Yeah, definitely can. I mean, it, it always has done in the old world we used to live in. Yeah. Um, why did we move here? Uh, to stop what you're saying, I think I've got the station right behind me on, on film now. Um, we are seven minutes from Manchester. We are, you know, the connectivity that it gives us here to London, Stockport, the airport or wherever is amazing. We've got a new transport um, interchange coming down the road as well for the bus station, etc. The cost of being in Stockport was always great and the culture of the place is fantastic. But I think, again, another change of the pandemic was if there was any skills or labour shortage or whatever, certainly in that kind of development and digital skills, etc., we can now access on a, on a broader level and, you know, if they can get into the office one or, once or twice a week, great, because actually we think that in, helps them understand the culture of the business and, you know, get our personality, our story, and our, so they feel part of it. But actually they don't need to be here every day. So, you know, I think all those things have, have meant we're very happy being in Stockport as the base. And just as we can ask you that, as a leader, what, what, what is your views on where people should work? Do you want everyone here in the office or, or you know, is there that flexibility? I, um, I am a bit of a dinosaur, so I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm wrong side of 50 now, um, although I don't feel it. Um, but I, I grew up working hard and, you know, let's be, let's be blunt at times, trying to impress the boss. And I think all those things are difficult. And I, I, know I sound like, you know, an old guy now, but... I worry for youngsters who work remotely 100% of the time. Developing yourself as an individual, personally and professionally, is about watching, listening, learning, almost by osmosis at times. You don't know you're doing it, but it's how your line manager or your CEO or whoever is dealing with things that are going on around you, building relationships. They are going to miss out. So that said, I have to accept that the, the world we live in now is hybrid working, and I get it. And I'm very supportive of it. I've always been had a flexible approach in terms of somebody wants to, you know, flex their hours for their own reason. That's great, fine, no problem. And I think you know, some somewhere in between of this kind of being in two days, three days, and working from home. You know, I am doing a bit of it myself, not much because I actually quite like just coming into work every day and separating that that boundary. But I have to acknowledge that the the future is somewhere in between. It's what our colleagues tell us they want to do which is the most important thing, actually. Um, I just fear very slightly that those folk who do want to stay at home more as a higher percentage are ultimately going to just miss out on being part of something. And also, and this is a more selfish view, for CEOs of the future, how does a CEO of the future get the personality of their business, the culture of the business, their own personality, when all colleagues see, it's like one of those wedding frames, isn't it, there you go, um, but they see this of me for 20 minutes a month on the company comms. They're not going to get to know me. You know, I, I've just had my lunch in the canteen next door with a tea towel attached uh, in here because I, I knew I was coming in here and I didn't want to get red sauce down my, my, down my shirt. Okay, the CEO sits in the canteen with a tea towel attached. Well, that's me. It's my personality. I'll have a game pool with them. Mm. And it's part of just 
getting to know you and the business. It's, and it's, I love, it's a dead cliche, but it's, I did a psychology degree at university after uh, schooling here. And I, I love people. I love getting to know them and understand them and communicating with them. Uh, and I fear that's what people miss out who work virtually too much. That is interesting. Yeah, my next question was, you know, how do you feel like you've changed as a leader? You seem a very approachable person and then you, you know, hate to mention it, but you get leaders who are kind of revered like Sir Alex Ferguson. It was very, that was very much command and control. So. <laughs> That's right. Or, or Pep Guardiola. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, do you. Do you think that kind of command and control type of leadership of, is kind of dying out or, or, or is there a kind of place for it? And, and how, how, how have you changed in terms of how you, how you lead? Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, you, you mentioned Fergie, so I will. Fergie at times was a bully. Um, he was, whether he read or blue or whatever. And actually he was, that was part of people revering him for, you know, he, the, the hairdryer approach and all that. I've worked for two or three MDs and CEOs myself in the past who at times had that edge to their game and shouted at people. That, that's never really been for me. I think people too easily mistake being nice in life because I, I like to be nice in terms of I respect people. I value them, I trust them. But people mistake that sometimes for softness. But actually, as we talked about before with the shops, if there's a difficult decision to be made, it has to be made. It's a business decision. We're here for business. You can still deliver it, and execute is the wrong word, but execute it in a decent, uh, nice manner. Nice is a bit of a twee word, but I can't think of a better one. Um, and I think that old-fashioned, dare I say, shouty bullying thing, those days are gone. Though you know. The young folk of today, my three girls, would not respond well. Believe me, I did shout at them occasionally when they were young. And they didn't respond well to it. And I just don't think people do. People need motivating in different ways. And, you know, everything in life, definitely everything in business life, can be compared to football when you're into football like I am. And I think that is a great pep and the Klops, and I will bring Klopp into it, because actually he's an amazing motivator. He brings people with him. I don't think they'll be shouting that often. I think at times they'll have that edge to them, but they're good, decent people who people believe in and will go along with them. And that's you know that's why they get the best out of, out of their playing squad. That's just really interesting. Um, so you also just want to talk about you know the the business now. You, you are international, so yeah. Could you just talk about your your operation in America and do you you know are you looking to grow into other territories? Yeah. So um, we started the U.S. business uh, eight or nine years ago. Same business model, based in um, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, it's called Declutter over there. Um, anybody who's seen previous interviews of me has probably knows why, but they didn't know what magpies were. When, when we showed them the magpie on our website, when we first launched it was musicmagpie.com, they said, what's a magpie? And I showed them a picture of the cartoon magpie, and they thought it was a penguin. Uh, so we had to rename it. We renamed it Declutter. Do you think about Music Penguin or? Um, or Music Blue Jay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is what they've got. Uh, doesn't quite roll off the tongue in the same way. Declutter does, so very pleased with the brand name. Um, it's about 25-30% of our group turnover over there. Um, it's interesting, when we very first thought about IPO and people started to talk to us and said, what's your equity story? What's the bit that's going to really grab the investor's attention? And we said, we've got this US business and it does a quarter of our group turnover in a market that's four times as big. Do the maths, we can all, you know, that's a massive opportunity. It's not our equity story anymore. The kiosks that I've mentioned before are pivoting into dealing and servicing with corporates. 
and our rental monthly subscription model is. That is not to say US has slipped off our radar. Quite the opposite, actually. We're developing those things. We're going to take the learnings, take the best bits, take, adapt them, research them, and take them to the US market. So really excited about the US business. Actually, it's been one of the toughest bits of the last couple of years of the pandemic of not being able to visit them. Mm. Um, but very, very much hope to you know, be able to rectify that. Get out there, go and see them uh, over there. We've got a wonderful team of folk over there, about 125, 150 colleagues. Um, Obviously, these two markets are, are vastly different, but does that change how you kind of manage uh, the, 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 the companies in each country? I think it's fascinating because if you think about the US business, I broadly always had to lead the business in the US virtually, which is what we've done a lot of in the last two and a half years in the UK. So a lot of that was regular comms, company comms, video, etc. Getting over there and visiting them and being in front of them and being in person as often as possible. Um, but actually that was almost then quite useful for how to lead the entire group business when we went into the pandemic and I think actually a valuable valuable lesson was um, something we've now continued with and will do for evermore uh, I suspect hope is that we do our monthly company comms we didn't used to do that in the old world so actually um, we may have a hybrid day where we've got 30 or 40 people who are here but I'll do a company comms to the whole business where everybody can dial in and just hear from me and then a couple of my senior leadership team colleagues on different areas. So this time we had a commercial update and an update on our charity of the year from my colleagues. But just touch base with people, even for just half an hour a month, it's so important. They hear from you, how you're doing, where we're up to, what the goals are, how it's going. I mentioned before, can't give them the same level of detail that we used to, but engage with them. So they feel that they're part of it and they emotionally engage with you. And I think that's that's been a huge lesson and it's making sure in the US where they see literally not none of you because I'll, I'll get there two three times a year but it's it's making them feel that same relationship and connection with you even though you're doing nearly all of it virtually uh, through a screen rather than in person and you know with with the kind of the perception of America you know we've had we've got the rail strikes now we've had sort of great flights grounded yeah. GG is great Britain becoming less great in, in your opinion. Gosh, we could be here the rest of the afternoon now, mm. Um Yeah, I, I worry a great deal about. So um, without being here all afternoon, I, again, like my dad, probably grew up slightly right-leaning in my politics. Mm. I guess a lot of that was, you know, working for yourself, capitalist, you know, gosh, I was a Thatcher's child kind of thing. Um, and I have turned very much so the other way now. I'm a very socialist in nature and... I, you know, since we were walked off a cliff for Brexit, and we were, I don't care what anybody tells me, I will listen all day long to reasoned, intelligent arguments about why Brexit makes sense, and I'll enjoy listening to those because you can't live life in an echo chamber, but I'm afraid the vote turned into a one-dimensional immigration vote for too many people, and we walked off a cliff, and we've lied ever since, we made a hash of Covid, I'm afraid it is broken Britain, you know, mm. we... If food's on the shelf, it's going up by 10%. Uh, you know, you mentioned the railways, you mentioned the airports, you know. So much of this is Brexit-driven. It, it just is for me. Um, and I do worry that the country is, yeah. It is broken, but, you know, um, something 
I've done recently is I've backed a guy called John Billings here in Stockport to form mm. um, a charity called Egg, which provides innovative permanent solutions for homelessness mm. to get people back into residency and employment. And Music Magpie is one of those employers. And it's our job, it's the rest of society. It's a bit, you've asked before about what contribution can we all make to green and sustainability. It's our job as society now to step up to the plate and help those most vulnerable because it's no longer a tiny minority of people. This is becoming worse and worse. And we need to help the people. In the absence of other people helping them, we need to step up and help, uh, help them. Society's become have and have not, even more so than it ever has been. And we've got to help those folk. That, that was fascinating, Stephen. Do you think that if it is broken, is it, is it fixable? And, you know, are you kind of optimistic about the future or, or you did mention you, you were worried then? I think the goodwill of the vast majority of people, my wife, uh, bless her because she's the most beautiful, lovely person in, in the world and I love her more than the world. She fundamentally, fundamentally believes people are good. Mm. You know, at heart, everybody starts good and everybody actually stays good. There is a heart in there where they want other people to be well and, you know, prosper and, you know, Actually, it was one of our, my first ever loss prevention managers in retail many years ago talked about 10% of people at either end of the scale, 10% of people um, are actively looking to be dishonest maybe at times and look to work away and work the system. 10% of people are purer than white at the other end. It's that 80% in the middle. That's what's going to make the difference. They've got to step up, move themselves to that end, make a positive contribution in life. No, I, I, since we started this, I've wanted to make a difference. Like I saw my dad doing behind his counter, make a difference in life, make a positive contribution. You know, some of my best pals, hospital consultants, people who've worked in charities, people who support the lower end of society, they are making a positive difference all every day. That's how this country will, will fix itself. And we've got to reward them and look after them. No, thanks, you. Just wants to get a, a sense of... You know, how, how do you relax? Like, what, what do you do when you kind of, like, switch off? Like, you know, you mentioned football earlier. So I'm the simple. again, if you talk to my wife about this, I'm, I'm, in a sense, the simplest person in the world to keep, you know, keep happy or whatever. Um, I've got three things in my life. My family and friends, first and foremost, above, way and beyond anything else in life. So Catherine and the three girls and my family and close friends are everything to me. Number two in life, business and magpie and my family and friends in here, and that's what they are. Number three is sport, in particular football, in particular City. <laughs> so I am, United fans many, many years ago used to call City fans, Bertie, Bertie Magoo, the bitter blue from Stockport. Welcome, that's me, I'm that old, old City fan. And that was, you know, the best City could ever hope for was when United didn't win something in the old days. They, that was the true Bertie Magooness of the whole situation. Clearly those have flipped. What I will say now is, and we talk about this, me and my pals who, you know, legacy blues as they're called. When you used to go to City, it was like, for a, for a laugh with your mates, we were crap. And, and you'd have a beer and just go for the banter. And you might win, you might not. Now, actually, my hobby, my release uh, in life is my most stressful thing. When you go to the league every year and you can't lose a game, you can't drop a point, it becomes blooming stressful. So, yeah, that is... Watching City with, you know, my friends, uh, with my family, you know, my middle daughter in particular is, is football daughter and love spending time with her, going to the match with pals, have a drink and, and try and unwind. 
And Steve, yeah, our, our, the the title of our magazine is, is business leader and, and our events network. And just want want yeah to get your insight. What makes a great business leader? Um, I think somebody who um, has respect has respect of their team um, and um, leads from the front is very much what you know. Apologies for the cliches, but they are true. Um, I have mentioned before um, how I've always believed in doing that is I trust people, I respect people, and I value people. And the value bit isn't necessarily, albeit it's a hugely important part of you know financially rewarding them and what's in it for them because you know we all come to work ultimately for uh, I'd love to think everybody just does it for the fulfillment like I do but now we we do want to be rewarded and paid and that is an important aspect but feeling valued is feeling listened to feeling respected and, and and being trusted you know for somebody like me especially given that you know I started the business with with Walt and we did everything together and I was customer service, I was always picking orders and all that kind of stuff. I've had to delegate that out to people. And that can be quite tough at times. Are they going to do it in the same way that I would have done it? No, well, actually, no, they're going to do it better than I am because you bring in great people. But if you trust them to do that job, you give them guidance, you give them say, you, if it's going wrong, and I've mentioned before about this doesn't mean you're soft and soapy about everything. If, you, if you, something's going wrong, you take a hard decision you try and stop it getting to this point, but you stop it, and thanks very much for that. It's not work, but it is about respecting, trusting, and valuing people, and bringing people along with you so they feel part of your journey. So, and you are approachable. They do know you. They do know you support Man City. So when you walk past them, they can. If they talk about nothing else, it's they'll talk footy with you. Um, but actually, no, you lead, and they know who you are, know what you stand for and you set the tone and the personality of the business. No, thanks. And just, um, yeah, I mean, those are my questions. Just a final word for people who watch this, who are in business, might, might be going for a difficult time. What, what would you kind of say to them? So I spoke with um, uh, a young lady who used to work at Magpie, and she left uh, pre-pandemic, uh, just pre-pandemic, to set up her home, own homeware craft business called Kitsch Republic. I'll give her a quick plug. plug. And um, I spoke to her yesterday and she said, God, it's hard. And I said, I know it's hard. It is. Growing a business, starting a business, growing a business is hard. She's done it because she had a unique skill and talent and she had a passion and she had a desire to do it. But what Ange knows is that you've got to work hard. That isn't enough. It is not, you know, too many, I'm afraid, of young, early, new tech founders or whatever thing. I've had a bright idea and I'll try and get some funding and away we go. It is bloody hard graft at times and you have to work at it. And do not underestimate that. And at times, some of the sacrifices you have to make for that, you know, early in Magpie, I was answering customer service emails at one, two o'clock in the morning. I was sending me emails off to Royal Mail to negotiate contracts with Royal Mail at three o'clock in the morning. And it's not all about this. Of course, you need slices of luck. Of course, you need great people around you to, to, to do that. But when you start off as a young, new business, be prepared to work hard. And I know that's very fundamental advice, but I think it's underestimated by so many that you know you have to be prepared to put those, those hours in the hard toiling at times. And you know you will get the rewards for it. It is great. There's nothing can replace it. And I don't look back for a second and regret any of it. 
and I hope my girls would say, you know, I, I wasn't one of those, you know, I, I read too many interviews where it says, I missed out on the kids growing up and, you know, I, you know didn't go for parents even all that. I hope Kath and the girls would say, I was there every time they needed them because I got to refer back to that ranking before. Family, friends, and then business. So I always got the priority right, but actually, do not underestimate how hard it is at times. And what I said to Ange yesterday is, there's nothing wrong with just surviving some, some days, some weeks, some months, some periods in life. It's tough out there at the moment. Don't beat yourself up because your revenue curve's not doing that anymore. It's leveled out a bit. There's nothing wrong with just surviving, existing, and that goes for life at times, doesn't it? You know, we all have good days, bad days. Just don't, don't beat yourself up about it. It is hard out there at the moment, but keep going and keep working hard. And, you know, if it happens not to end well for you, if it doesn't, and I'm sure it will succeed for Ange, but generally in life, if it doesn't work out, if you have a knock, if it goes wrong, dust yourself down and get on with it again. Don't sulk, don't moan. You know, learn your lessons, dust yourself down. It's what I did 15, 16, 17 years ago with one my co-founder. We dusted ourselves down and we got on with it and stood up and you go again. That's the most important lesson in business.